This is Sage Talking. If your brain is ready to soak up some natural, informative, and no BS knowledge, then you're in the right place. Join me in talks about nature, people, health, sustainable businesses, and everything in between. You won't miss out on the occasional politics and interviews with ecopreneurs either. P.S. I want to know what you want to know. So send in questions or topic requests on my IG at thrive underscore by nature. Hey, and thank you for being here. Senator Wish Wilson from Tasmania may be the coolest senator I have ever come across. Granted, that's not many, but still. Today, he's giving us some more insights on the plastic crisis, fishing, and the changes in nature that he is experiencing in his own home country right now. I hope you enjoy this talk with the surfing senator, Peter Wish Wilson. Hello, Senator. Oh, yes. Hello. How are you coming? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. I've got a whole week at home in northern Tasmania where I live this week, which is pretty rare. Normally I only get a few days in a row at home, so yes, I'm making making the most of it, Stella. Yeah, and I have to ask this, but have you been on a surf today? <laughs> no, no, not today. <laughs> no, look, I've been really lucky in recent weeks and months. In fact, the last 12 months during COVID, while it's been difficult in many regards, because I've spent so much time at home, I've, I've got more more surfing time and more waves than I have in the last 10 years as a senator in the last 12 months. So I've been, I've, been, I've been pretty fortunate. Well, the first thing that I think everybody would like to know, who knows of you, um, why did you want to become a senator and member of the Green Party? It's a really good question and, and a, quite a difficult one to answer because I can genuinely say I, I had... I wasn't ambitious to be a you know I had no ambition to be a senator or, or a politician for many years. Um, I'm probably more an accidental politician. Uh, I was a community campaigner, and where I live in northern Tasmania, um, a big aggressive timber company was going to build one of the world's biggest pulp mills in my valley where I lived, where I, I'd planted my grapes and I was bringing up my kids. Uh, you know, the ocean where I surfed and the mountains and forests where I walked were all going to be impacted by this project. And so I decided as a community campaigner to oppose it. Uh, and, you know, 10 years of fighting this 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 pulp mill, it would have consumed nearly all of Tasmania's old native forests. And it was going to put 30 billion litres of industrial waste in the ocean every year where I surfed. And after 10 years, we, we finally beat that company and the project fell, fell apart and collapsed and we breathed a sigh of relief. Uh, and then uh, I kind of realised that what was happening in Tasmania, in my small island on the bottom of the world, was just a, a microcosm of all these bigger things that were happening around the planet. You know, where big aggressive corporations were, you know, basically in bed with government. And doing what they wanted to do, polluting, you know, polluting the air, um, polluting our rivers, our oceans, uh, trashing our forests, um, producing plastic that we could never recycle or or use again. And so I felt like I, I kind of needed to step up to the plate. Um, and what I, the work I do in federal parliament in Canberra is, yeah, it's very similar. Like you know, we we spend a lot of our time trying to trying to. I suppose, uh, bring some balance back to the system. Yeah. 
So the work you do now as a senator, do you feel, um, what do you do all day long? Do you, do you still feel you're doing the same work just in a different position as you were before with your passion for, for the environment and nature, just in a position where it's, it's more your job and you have a bigger influence? Yeah, it's a huge privilege to be a senator and to be part of a bigger movement. And I think that's that's the way the Greens see themselves. We, we literally see ourselves as being the political arm of a much broader uh, grassroots movement, um, a movement of, of, of protest, a movement of advocacy, a movement of protection. Um, and we have an incredible toolbox when you work in Parliament. There's so many things you can do, so many resources at your fingertips um, to actually help um, the movement and help uh, all these environment groups and, um, you know, social movements and all the people that require your help. Yeah. So to answer your question in a different way, um, I think it's really important and I always remind myself that I, I, I should feel the way that I did before I went into politics and that, and that my days really shouldn't be any different. Yeah. And I think if, if you lose touch with that, with that, your grassroots, where you, where you started and I started as a community campaigner, if you lose touch with those 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 roots and the people that you that support you, then you're in trouble. So, and it is easy in Parliament when you're always travelling, you're always on a plane, you're away from your family and your community, you're away from the ocean, from nature. It's very easy to lose touch and get kind of, you know, sucked in and drawn in with all the power and the perks and the, and the money and um, you know the the ego and the status that goes with the job, but. Um, yeah, at the end of the day, all I need to do is get in the ocean or go for a walk in the forest to remind myself of, of why I did this in the first place and what's really important. Yeah, and and because you have this and because you're aware of that and you kind of have this as your identity, then that is something um, where which probably makes you very different from a lot of other politicians. But would you say that many of like um, your colleagues or other politicians that you meet and um, are they recognizing now more and more in the severity of the climate crisis and kind of are more people experiencing a shift in mindset or is it still pretty meager, would you say? It's a good. It's a really good question. Um, I'd certainly say in the Greens movement, my, all my colleagues are are very aware of the the point we find ourselves at in history, and and what and what's changing, and what and what's happening. Um, I think more broadly, so are many of the Australian people and, and and other politicians. It's not that I think the problem is so much that people um, don't know enough about it. I think there's a, the, the, the problem and the risk is there's a general fatigue setting in. Mm-hmm. Um, people are starting to potentially give up. They're starting to say it's too late. Um, I've, got to, I've got to say this to you. The changes that I have seen as a senator in the last 10 years, even though I came to Parliament as a campaigner and someone who'd worked in marine conservation, someone who'd campaigned for climate action, uh, pl- action on plastics in the ocean, even if you told me 10 years ago, that I would see and experience what I've seen and experienced in the last five years, I wouldn't have believed you. Mm-hmm. That things have tipped, have, have tipped so radically here in Australia. To lose half of the Barrier Reef, you know, one of the biggest living organisms on the planet in the last five years from mass coral bleachings, from climate change to, in Tasmania where I live, our giant kelp forests. 
have, have disappeared. They've, they've completely vanished, you know, and, and all the ecosystems that go with it. The fires, the, the heat waves, the drought, the kind of things we're experiencing as a country, I, I thought maybe when I was a grandfather that that's yeah. the kind of thing I would be seeing. But we are seeing that tipping point now. So I find that the, the risk is people are starting to lose, lose heart and lose hope. And I think for other people that maybe that don't care as much, it's kind of becoming normalised. Yeah. They're going, oh, yeah, of course things are changing, of course the weather's changing. and But, you know, like it's, I've still got my job, I've still got my house, I've still got yeah. my kids. Like they're, they're, I don't think the sense of urgency is there. Yeah. Uh, That's definitely um, something that um, I, I also experience a lot when I talk to people. Um, some people, as you said, have this mentality um, that it's it's um, everything is still fine now for many people in in more privileged privileged countries like ours where it doesn't directly affect us if we're not farmers um, who have to care about our crops and other people are kind of having um, this doomsday mentality where they think um, I'm not going to do anything because there's nothing to do um, and it's all very hopeless and overwhelming so um, that's uh, definitely and that you are already seeing this in this grand scale is definitely also something very different than from here in Germany because we don't have an ocean um we I'm the only thing we can say is that a lot of forests um are doing very badly right now worse yeah. than they have ever done and they're dying much quicker and because um they're a lot more susceptible to um different um, illnesses and sicknesses um but mm. we're definitely not experiencing is it as badly as you're describing it Yeah, well, we've where, where, I, where I live in Tasmania, we have um, some of the oldest trees in the in the world. Um, the trees like pencil pines that are you know many many thousands of years old, and these these forests or these kind of biodiversity hotspots have never seen fire in their life on this planet, and yet they've been burnt in, in recent years in Tasmania. Yeah. Um, you know, and these wildfires have been started by dry lightning, which is very rare because normally lightning here always comes with rain. But what we've seen in the last 10 years is increasing frequency of dry lightning, igniting all our wild areas and burning them. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, it's definitely nothing we've experienced before. Yeah. Um, on another big issue, which is um, the plastic crisis, you were the first senator to raise this issue of plastic pollution choking the oceans in the Australian Parliament. And now in 2020, there was a recycling and waste reduction bill introduced. And can you quickly explain what this entails and what that means for waste management in Australia? Yeah, so um, look, we're obviously like a lot of a lot of countries, we're, we're trying to build a, we would like to see a circular economy. And by that, I mean an economy where nothing is wasted, nothing leaves the economy, everything has a value throughout its entire life. So a plastic cup or a plastic bottle, when it's produced, it's used, and then it's you know recycled or, or reused or repurposed. Uh, and the problem with Australia is, like many countries, is we use every year we use more and more plastic, especially single-use plastic uh, and plastic items um, that are a throwaway society. Um, you know, no, no one seems to care about what happens to them once they're used. Uh, they go to landfill, they get burnt, they find their way into rivers and streams and the ocean. So I've introduced a bill based on the European Union bill to, to ban uh, certain, 10, the 10 most common items of single-use plastic you find in our ocean. 
that's based on research of um, extensive surveys of beaches. Um, and I've also, companies in Australia, there's been a lot of greenwash in the past. Companies have said that they were going to, you know, have strong targets or in, internal voluntary targets for, you know, having everything they everything all their packaging uh, recyclable or yeah. you know, 50% of their packaging is compostable so you can use it in compost or, you know, 50% of their packaging has to be already made from recycled material, you know, this kind of thing. But they keep saying it, but they never do it. So yeah. um, I, I put up uh, amendments to the government's legislation to make those voluntary targets compulsory so that the government would regulate and force those corporations to, to meet these targets. And of course, also to ban single-use plastics. Unfortunately, the Senate, the vote was drawn, so it was fifty-fifty, and uh, we lost by one vote to get mm -hmm. really big, really big reforms in this country, which I was very disappointed about. Yeah, so we're not and giving then, up. We're not giving up. Yeah, I'm, and I'm sure these corporations uh, weren't too agreeable in making these voluntary targets um, actual laws and guidelines. <laughs> No, they won't. They they lobbied really hard to prevent it. Yeah. They, it almost got to the point of panic. Yeah, uh, I can imagine. Fact, <laughs> the fact they might be held to account uh, yeah. for all that for their greenwash and spin over the years, but you know, I think things. I'm sure it's the same in in Germany and Europe and other countries. Public consciousness has shifted on this issue. It, it's a it's a really good environmental issue in the sense that it doesn't matter what your political background. Or what your colour, everybody agrees we need to do something about reducing plastic. Everybody agrees it's terrible when it goes into the ocean and kills marine life. Or they see it on the beach or by the side of the road. Everybody wants to do something about it, except the big greedy corporations that make a lot of money out of it. Yeah. And, and of course, lazy, corrupt politicians who don't want to don't want to act. Yeah, um, I think it's probably, as you say, the same thing all over um, the world. But have you, um, do you have an idea which areas in the world are looking like they're doing a good or at least a decent job in tackling the plastic crisis? And what are these countries doing differently? Yeah, so look, um, it's, a, it's a really good question. I have to say, overall, no one's doing enough. Yeah. Um, I, the, the bill that I modeled my legislation on was the European Union. So, and in fact, they have been the, the world's first parliament to uh, to ban single-use plastics in, in, in a certain form. Um, I think Australia was the first country to have a parliamentary inquiry into this issue, which I, I initiated back in 2015, um, that looked at the scourge of marine plastics. But I'd have, we looked at all around the world at what legislation we could use. And while there were some state-based initiatives in the United States, for example, um, and some other countries, there's it, been very little done on it around the world. And um, Europe's actually a leader in terms of action on plastic pollution. Mm -hmm. but, that, yeah. but it's not good enough, though, on, on any level, really. Yeah, it is definitely not. Um, but it, it, there's also talk with issues like these. Um, you always hear um, politicians and also governments talking about a greener world or economy being too expensive, yet research has shown time and time again that through proper budgeting and reprioritization, it is totally feasible and also realistic to do a lot better on most of these issues. And um, what is your opinion on this? What are you seeing on, on budgeting and spending money in sort of the wrong places right now? Yeah, look, I, I think it's, um, 
in terms of um, in Australia anyway, the the environment is the debate often comes down to you know um, conservation versus extraction, uh, or the cost of taking action, like the cost of climate change is higher electricity bills or you know um, other things that politicians will will, will dream up. Um, there's certainly no evidence that the cost of action outweighs the cost of action. Sorry, the cost of inaction uh, is even higher, and we've got plenty of data on that. Uh, I think the government, it depends on the government with budget priorities. But um, we've we've always been, to give you an example, uh, we've always been a, um, a big fan of a Green New Deal or, or a version of a Green New Deal that has government playing a strong role in the lives of its citizens, uh, allocating money towards, um, you know, a, a transition to, to renewable energy, a transition to a circular economy, um, you know, ec- principles of economic justice, uh, racial justice. You know, all these things can come from a really positive agenda driven by government by reprioritising their budgets. But it, it relies on governments playing an active role because although corporations in many areas are ahead of governments, in terms of the action they're taking, for example, on technology with renewables or managing carbon risk, um, we really need a, a much stronger role. And, and during COVID, and I, I presume Germany and other countries have been thinking about this as well, during COVID where the economy has been is very severely impacted by uh, restrictions, um, governments have an even more important role to play in terms of recovery during this period. And we've been arguing that the best way to recover from a COVID depression has been through um, a green recovery. And I know Europe's been saying the same thing. Um, I'm very ashamed to admit it, but my government, their priority is still developing fossil fuels and exporting uh, mining resources. Uh, During COVID, um, they've actually used the pandemic as an excuse to ramp up more fossil fuel development, not less. So they've gone exactly the opposite way to the rest of the world in their budgets and their priorities. They're saying we're going to lock in another 30 to 50 years of coal, uh, oil and gas development in Australia. And and that's because they're in the pockets of the big um, coal companies and the big mining companies and the big uh, petroleum companies. Our government takes their donations, they give them what they want in parliament and the the merry-go-round keeps spinning. So it's it's got to stop. Yeah, as you say, sometimes um, uh, here's the same feeling that um, the big uh, corporations and industries um, actually have um, the governments in in their pockets to um, say so. Because um, here, um, I think last year, um, we had also so much energy from um, solar power and wind power. um, But um, what also people from, for example, Greenpeace um, found out was that the green energy was um, not used first, but last, and most of it was going unused because we had so much energy from also fossil fuels and other um, not green sources, um, which was used first for energy, electricity, um, and all the other green renewable energies we're actually paying for with um, our taxes are um, going unused because there's just not enough capacity. And so people, I think, are very um, just um, exasperated to know that we have these tools, we have the technologies to do better, but um, it's just um, an issue of governing and not having the right prioritization. So I think um, that is something, yeah, people are very um, mad about at the moment and also feel very helpless. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think it's an interesting political dynamic, renewable energy, because there are a lot of supporters in, in Australia, and I presume it's the same elsewhere, who, who want to have their own solar panels on their roof. They want to have their own batteries at home so they can store their own energy. They can sell energy onto the grid when it suits them. They can charge their cars. And the reason people like it is it gives them a feeling of independence, a feeling yeah. of independence from, um, you know, the government, from, from corporations that, you know, the utilities that charge them rates. Um, yeah, there's a very, it's a very interesting mix of people that are into, into renewable energy. And I think the future is, that is the future for renewables. It's, you know, smaller distributed energy when the, with the cost of batteries coming down, being more affordable. Um, you know, that millions of homes around the world will, fu- will function as virtual power stations. Yeah, uh, and that's that's the future. It's uh, whether governments like it or not. Um, I think that's already almost it's you know almost too late to turn that around, which is a good thing. Yeah, um, as as a surfing senator, you're also very much known for your dedication to ocean conservation and a love for the sea. What are some of the biggest problems, except um, as you said, the coral bleachings, um, that the oceans in Australia are facing right now? Yeah, so the the, fir- the first problem um, is is climate change. Obviously, um, war- warming oceans and oceans becoming more acidic. Uh, even if you took away a lot of the other problems, um, that in itself is is, is uh, a- enough to you know completely alter um, ecosystems around around the planet. Because obviously, the ocean absorbs so much of the world's CO2 and so much of the world's heat. It really is the barometer of the weather and and and, and life on this planet. So um, that that's without a doubt the number one thing we've got to tackle. But um, all these pressures become cumulative. So when you add overfishing uh, to that, um, when you add pollution from uh, you know from land-based sources and from ships, uh, when you add pollution from plastic, you know that it's estimated there'll be more plastic in the ocean than fish by 2050 at the rate that plastic's making its way into the ocean. We, yeah. found, pl- we found plastic in, in plankton in the Antarctica. We found pl- microplastic inside plankton at the bottom of the ocean in Antarctica. It is through everything. So that issue is, 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 is huge. Uh, in Australia, we, have, we kill indiscriminately. We kill uh, you know, thousands of sharks and protected dolphins and stingrays and even whales every year by putting shark nets in the ocean to try and protect swimmers. Um, and shark nets don't protect swimmers, but we just won't change our mentality. So we're still doing stupid things like that, that uh, we, sh- you know, we, we, we shouldn't be doing. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of issues there, but um, you know, the number one thing is we need to act on climate because uh, while we could, for example, uh, take out salmon farms, industrial salmon farms are doing a lot of damage to my, home state, the ecosystems around where I live, you know, in, in, in basically a pest species that's been grown in millions, in the millions in these industrial pens off the coast that are, you know, dumping uh, nitrogen and, and other pollutants into our beaches. We can change these things, but it's not going to help if we don't tackle climate change. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, but, that, but all together, treated together as cumulative stresses and pressures, They are killing our oceans. They are breaking the back of this huge, powerful ecosystem, and you know, we have to we have to tackle them all at once. But we really need to, you know, we really need to step up our action. Yeah, and with with the current state of the oceans, 
um, many say also um, because now um, you know probably that um, Seaspiracy, the Netflix documentary, was very popular among a lot of people, and also even if some people are fighting a little about different facts, it has definitely yeah. um, brought a different awareness to people, especially also about um, fish and seafood. And many say um, that consuming fish and and seafood of any kind is irresponsible today. Is would you say that there that sustainable fishing still does exist um, or would you say yeah right now it's just um, a luxury we can't afford um, fishing is not a good idea anymore or buying seafood from from a store yeah it's a it's a huge it's a huge question um, I, I'm always careful when I answer these questions because um, you know we have a lot of issues in our country with you know colonial mentalities towards our first nations peoples Uh, and um, I know our First Nations peoples in this country and elsewhere have Indigenous fishing rights. You know, um, where I come from in Tasmania, um, our, the first Tasmanians have been here for 60,000 years. They're one of the oldest cultures on the planet. Uh, and that, and fishing is very important to, and, and collecting shells and abalone and uh, oysters and seafood is very, very important to their culture. Um, but, you know, they managed to be stewards and, and custodians of that resource for tens of thousands of years. But in just 150 to 200 years, we've managed to almost completely destroy our marine resources. And uh, I, I, I don't, I, I, I can't eat seafood. Uh, I just can't because, you know, I'm, I'm aware of what's happening in the oceans. Sometimes I will catch my own uh, abalone where I, I go diving sometimes where I have a house on the east coast of Tasmania. And sometimes I will catch, some abalone, but they're very hard to find now. Like they, they, they're not in abundance like they used to be. Um, but it varies from country to country. Um, I think uh, there are many, many nations in poorer countries that uh, seafood is, is such an important protein for them. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the reef, the reef, the coral reefs around the world, nearly half a, half a billion people rely on coral reefs for their sustenance and their livelihoods. And those, of course, those coral reefs are in, in danger. They're in peril. Yeah. They're, 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 they're very unlikely to survive the next 50 years yeah. at current rates of warming. So I think this is going to be, issue is going to be brought to a head anyway because there just won't be um, ecosystems capable of sustaining the kind of biomass we've had in the past. Look, there'll be some positive changes, according to the scientists here. They, they say as Tasmania's water, where I live, as our water, cold water becomes warmer, um, you'll see different species of fish uh, come down you know, with the warmer oceans. So you might lose some species, but you'll gain some species. But I think that what everybody agrees is that that comes with significant risks yeah. and uncertainties because you get lots of pests and diseases Uh, and, you know, uh, a, whole, a whole change to the dynamic of your ecosystems. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, can't, I won't eat seafood myself, but I, I don't want to judge First Nations people when I answer these questions. But, you know, I, I think the fishing industry themselves, and I do a lot of work with the commercial fishing industry here to try and help uh, with certain practices. Like I, for example, have um, stood with the commercial fishing industry to stop oil and gas drilling. Mm -hmm. uh, in, cer in certain areas where there's fisheries. So I do, I do work with these communities quite closely and I know, I know that they have suffered. I know, I know that they, um, you know, Stella, they understand the changes that they're seeing in the ocean. Some of these fishermen have been on the ocean for 50 years. 
Yeah. And you, you just need to talk to them and they'll tell you about the changes that they've seen, just the remarkable, frightening changes they've seen. They're aware that their their, their own futures are and, and livelihoods are in jeopardy. Yeah. And but I think the big um, difference also is because um, fishing is very popular here. Um, also, of course, then in, in lakes and not the ocean, but um, a lot of people do fish here. And um, I, I think for many people, yes, it is also part of their livelihood, but um, there's this big difference where people here who, as you say, they, they see the difference in which fish there are, um, how, how the waters are changing and which pollutants are in there and what they find um, when, they, when they open up fish even, which is scary and find all sorts yeah. of trash trash microplastics in there um and um but those people those as you could say um smaller fisheries and people who really depend on that um, for their livelihood every day they take a lot better care they they know the differences and um they they see it differently than um fishing boats that throw huge nets into the ocean yeah. that could swallow up like 13 jumbo jets could fit in there and um, there's of course a radical difference between the practices um yeah. but uh, i think that's also um good that people start to know a little more about that because um before sea spiracy for example had no idea about fishing they always said um oh but i'm trying to be more eco-friendly in my everyday life because they don't eat meat anymore and that's the thing i think with education is just a huge lag because people have many people have no idea the small things or the things they do in their everyday lives or inevitably that we are doing because of the system we're living in and that it's not just these basic things of not eating meat but then you have to know the fish you have to know about what you do what, what you actually buy in in fashion and all the things in your everyday life and i think that's also big lack of education um, is there are there any plans for example in australia to include more um of this education also in schools yeah there's um there's certainly been a lot of that around some environmental issues like plastics uh, i haven't seen it in relation to seafood i think what was what is true well one of the many true things that was in that um the Netflix series, uh, Seaspiracy, is just how powerful the fishing lobby can be. And I, I haven't seen any campaign in this country or any kind of anyone raising education and awareness around around fishing. There, there is, certainly in, in relation to tuna, yes. Um, I think a lot of kids learn about uh, dolphin-friendly uh, or so-called dolphin-friendly uh, tuna and how things are caught. Um, but yeah, I must admit, I haven't seen anything organized at a school, anything organized at a school level, mm-hmm. um, because there is a lot of, even though there's some certification, um, programs in place that you could, you could show people, um, there's also lots of questions around those certification processes. Yeah. And, and I mentioned earlier, um, Stella, we, we've, we've, we've got farmed fish, you know, 20 years ago, farm fish was put up as the alternative to save the world you know we were going to leave the wild caught fish alone we were going to farm salmon and farm other kinds of fish in vast numbers so we could feed the world but of course what wasn't disclosed was that a lot of those farm fish were being fed with wild fish mm-hmm. um, in fact small fish small pelagic fish off south america and australia were being caught in massive numbers to feed these farm fish so we were taking more 
biomass out of the ocean than we were we were previously. Uh, and of course, these fish farm fish farms cause a lot of problems as well. Yeah. So yeah, so I think we're at a, at a we're at a tipping point in our oceans where we've got a. We, 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 I don't think we're going to stop fishing and I don't think we're going to stop people eating seafood no matter what we do. Um, but what I think we need to do is, is protect more areas in the ocean um, where there can be no fishing and no oil and gas drilling, no tourism. We, we need areas to be protected for future generations where they can rebuild biomass stocks and they can rebuild, rebuild biodiversity. And, and what can people like... Uh, quote-unquote regular people do to help with these issues to say okay because many people feel helpless and they want to do something but they feel if they're not in politics if they don't have a high position somewhere that they have no power over anything with big issues like that and um, what can regular people do to support these causes well certainly um the, the bottom-up approach of people changing the way they live is critical um, whether it's um, you know reducing their consumption of meat and seafood, whether it's um, use, reducing their consumption of plastics, especially single-use plastics, uh, being very careful and vigilant with their carbon footprints, uh, planting more trees, volunteering community organisations. There's a lot of things individuals can do, and you know all those different things we say are taking action. If you're taking action. Um, it's really important for you as a person because it stops you from getting depressed. Yeah. It, it, it helps people stay optimistic. And in a very difficult world with the challenging times, um, it's important to try and always remain optimistic. There's, there's just no point in being negative. Um, so taking any kind of action helps. They go hand in glove. Taking action, remaining optimistic. They're, they're really, really important. But I always say to people, seller, that you may not be in politics and you may not feel like you're, you're, you know, you're a powerful person and you have influence, but people's vote is really, really important and it is powerful. Um, so I always say to people, every environmental problem you find on the planet, doesn't matter whether it's a big one like climate change or whether it's a pollution issue in your local river, nearly every environmental problem comes from an economic or business activity. Um, but that doesn't make it an economic problem. What that makes it is a political problem. So every environmental problem is actually first and foremost a political problem. Only politics and only governments can fix these problems. And the, the only people who get to choose the governments are the citizens and the voters. So you've got to vote for the change you want to see in the world and you've got to articulate that to your friends. You've got to share that with your networks on social media Get involved in organisations where they volunteer or be they political organisations. Um, get organised, um, agitate, disrupt, educate. There's so much for people to do, so much important stuff for people to do. Um, and once again, it's the only thing that's going to stop you getting dragged into this giant black hole of negativity out there. Yeah. Just get, get do, there's a lot of really powerful things people can do. But don't forget to vote for the change you want to see in the world. Yeah, that's um, definitely a topic here because um, they're already starting different um, elections um, in different states um, because we're voting for a new chancellor after 16 years, we'll have a new chancellor this year. And um, many people are very, very 
the Green Party is is getting a lot of votes this year, which obviously makes me um, very happy. But there are many people I have talked to um, and uh, had conversations with um, on um, social media about um, people who have yeah, a, a lot of adversities against voting for a Green Party because they see the Green Party as a prohibition party, which will drag down the small person by um higher prices for um everything that is like fossil fuels co2 um things like that um and yeah. obviously i i'm not going to lie about this i want to vote people for the green party because i feel like yeah. in um 2021 um you cannot vote for a political party that has no um plan anything about environmental issues and um what would you tell people who have a lot of adversities about voting for any green party just because it's green because i feel there's sort of a stigma around it like green parties yeah. will kind of um, put us into a financial crisis or something like that yeah look we face exactly the same issue here so in fact where i live in tasmania it's was don't know if you're aware of it but um tasmania was had the world's first green environmental political party. So it started in my small home state back in the 1960s. And that Greens party has grown around the world. Um, and funny enough, this issue is still really big here in Tasmania, even though this is where it all started. It's job, you know, jobs and economics versus um, the, protecting the environment. What people have to understand is that you can't separate the two things. Uh, the environment is the economy. Um, and taking action on protecting the environment can create lots of jobs. It can create lots of economic activity. Um, you can't put a price on 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 clean air or clean water or health. Um, these things we need to talk to people about. They have incredible intrinsic value. Uh, and the economic system that we use doesn't value these things. Uh, and almost deliberately so. Um, I think... We can also talk to people about, um, for example, renewable energy uh, will bring prices down. There's no, there's, there's no doubt that in a future revolution, in fact, it's happening here in Australia already, renewable energy is producing energy cheaper than coal. So there's lots of evidence you can provide to people. Um, but sometimes, you know, I think sometimes you just need to have conversations with people and think you're not going to change their mind. You know, they've got their mind made up. And as hard as it is, um, sometimes it's worth just saying, well, have a nice day uh, and go talk to someone else who might be more open-minded. But this is what I've learned as a politician over many years. Um, you can actually waste a lot of time talking to people that have had their mind made up. They might have their mind made up because, for example, they're very religious and they've got a very strong view. Uh, they might have it made up because they've been watching Fox News and reading all Rupert Murdoch's uh, newspapers and they don't get any other source of news. It could be fake news online. They're part of conspiracy groups. So I would just warn people: it's good to have conversations, um, but try and you know try and don't don't waste your energy and neg on negativity. And uh, or you'll always find someone out there that's got an open mind that's ready to be convinced. Yeah, and to end this on a very positive note, what is something right now a positive change that you're excited about where you say this is something that can give hope, something good that is happening right now in in politics? Um in do you, do you want something in my in, in my home state or so, sort of something 
something something international or it can be anything you're you're seeing right now where you say this is really a good a positive change yeah look i think um i think there's no doubt that we've seen for 20 years now we've seen uh a big push on renewable energy uh and moving the world towards a a, a lower emissions future um i don't think this is necessarily come from politics internally i think it's come from lots of outside pressures and um i've got to say i've i've i felt so happy before covid the year before covid to see the school climate strike movement around the world yeah to see yeah. you know to see young people speaking out about their future and and protesting and bringing their parents to protests and having these discussions around dinner tables at home it kind of really got me out of bed in the morning to be honest just seeing this energy um that was was emerging and and i think a lot of this is driving change we might not notice it and we we certainly might question whether it's changing fast enough um because we are at this tipping point and we have we you know david attenborough is right we we we, we can't be radical enough in our solutions to climate and uh protecting biodiversity um but i i, I do see the renewable energy revolution as as being unstoppable now yeah um i just think there's t- there's a lot of money and 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 energy invested in it now and i think technology itself can be a wonderful thing if it's used the right way and there's money to be made in renewable energy there's lots of jobs there's lots of jobs in maintaining renewable energy infrastructure as well as inventing it and pre- manufacturing it so i think you know i think that's a that's certainly a positive one and if i could just throw another one in there i, I more than anything i i've being the first Australian politician to talk about plastics in the ocean 10 years ago, and no one, no one had even mentioned it in my parliament. Um, our Prime Minister now has talked about this to the United Nations. Uh, it is a big global issue now that everyone's talking about and things are changing very fast. So, you know, I, I'm, very, I'm, very, I'm very optimistic about that. Uh, That's and good if to I could, hear. And if I could finish with one positive thing to say, sure. Um, one one thing I've noticed in my in my ten years in politics is sometimes it can take a long time for things to change. Uh, it's kind of like a a litmus test you do at chemistry at school, where you just it goes drop 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 in the beaker and then suddenly it changes really fast. When things change, they do change quickly. They may that may seem like they take a long time, but once. Once, once thing, once change happens, it, it it can be really, really rapid. Yeah. So you know, sometimes it's yeah, it's difficult to, very painful to wait, but just keep chipping away, and well, you know, you stay optimistic, and we'll get there. Yeah. Well, I thank you very much. This was ne- definitely some great information to hear, and I hope everybody who is who is listening, um, will also um take a lot away from this. And all I can say at the end is thank you for all that you are doing. And I think if we had um a lot more senators like you around the world, we definitely ha- would have a lot less problems. I think. Oh, Stella, thank you. Well, your interview has made my day. I really appreciate you listening from the other side of the world. It uh, gives me great hope. And thanks to, thanks to all your listeners too. Yeah, thank you for being here today. It was a true pleasure. We'll look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you, Stella. I hope you enjoyed this talk as much as I did. If you liked it, then please feel free to leave me a review and subscribe to this podcast so you know every time I upload a new one. And also thank you to the Senator for making this possible and for making this 
one of the most wonderful episodes I have and probably will ever record. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you have a great day. Thank you.